Hi, this is Eric Corey Freed. And Eve Blossom. And this is Care by Design. Today's interview is with Nathan Shedroff, and he shares with us about information design and how during the COVID-19 pandemic, information design really matters. Both Eric and I have known Nathan for decades and always find conversations with him tantalizing. Welcome, Nathan. It is a pleasure to have you today on Care by Design. Nathan, with your experience and information design background, what are you seeing during this first COVID-19 wave that you think could be more easily understood and possibly solved through better communication? The, the lessons to be learned here aren't new lessons for the most part. I mean, we are in a new situation. And COVID-19 is just one of, you know, it's an extreme event and phenomenon, but it's only one of many phenomenons that companies and businesses and organizations and people of all types have been, uh, have to respond to. We, we live in an era where there's constant disruption. Some of that is purposeful, some of it isn't. So the lessons to be learned here are not going to sound revelatory, right? Trust, truth, clarity um, in communications, uh, to some extent, empathy and selflessness, uh, the role of government as it was meant to be, as opposed to how it's been characterized for the last 50 years. Those are the things that are making the difference, or in many cases here, not making the difference uh, in our response and, and how, how, we, how we have been dealing with it and how we need to be dealing with it. I think every day, sometimes multiple times a day, I'm, I'm looking at the reported numbers. And you and I talked before about this, that, that the data is always presented as these disparate individual elements and there's no connection between them. And so almost once a week now, I'm, I'm literally copying and pasting data from a bunch of places, putting into an Excel sheet and, and trying to get it to a point where it's, it's actually meaningful. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it slowing? Is it speeding up? I, I actually can't tell. And I don't think any layperson could at all. And, you know, this is data coming from multiple sources and, and COVID-19 and any kind of health, um, you know, uh, health event like this is, is complex, right? So we're not even comparing across states consistently, let alone internationally. So it's, all, it's, it's effectively impossible for any lay person to get a clear understanding of what's going on. That doesn't mean that we can't get the gist of the story. And that certainly doesn't mean that we don't know enough to affect our actions. But the numbers that we need to, to truly tell the comparative story of what's working, what's not, and who's doing the best and who isn't, they just don't exist, not, not to us, and they may not exist anywhere. And so we distrust government, we distrust science, we distrust all these things um, because we just don't know anymore. We're bombarded with all these alternate realities. Yes, and regards to data for decision-making, what would we need to deploy to have better decision-making um, part of the process? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I learned from my mentors, Richard Saulwerman and uh, Michael Everett, were um, the difference between clarity and simplicity. And I think that's something that we all need to learn and actively engage, which is um, it's not enough to, to, to have simple solutions, right? It's not enough to have, nobody wants to live a simple life. Um, you know, 
they want their nacho cheese Dorito flavored burrito, right? Or, or salsa. They don't just want uh, simple as there's two kinds of Doritos and that's it, right? We all want what we want. We just want to be able to navigate a plethora of choices, or in this case, a plethora of data to get to what we're looking for. So clarity is important and it's never been more important than ever, but you don't get to clarity through simplicity by just simply cutting out it or ignoring uh, all the things that are seemingly unneeded at the time. You need to have that data present, um, make it available because that's the context for the thing that you're looking for. A good example is a map. If I drew, drew you a, a simple map to get to my house from SFO, you landed SFO, you know, do this, go here, go here, go here, and bingo, you're at my front door. Um, that is a simple map. It's really easy to follow, but there's no context around it. So the moment that the map, uh, you fall off the map, maybe there was a dead end, maybe there's a truck act, you know, that's blocking the, the street and you have to take a detour. The moment you're off the map, you are gone. All that simplicity is not serving you anymore. What, what's important to maps is when all the data is there, but the, uh, the data that you need is highlighted or exemplified or otherwise made clear within that context. We need the same thing now. Right. It's, you know, it, it touches on, I think, something that's rolling around all of our heads, which is, which is this newfangled term we're all using called evidence-based design. And, you know, um, we, have a, we have a joke at my firm that anytime somebody says, um, data-driven you have to take a take a drink or something but um but really that's what's happening here you know we're making ideally informed decisions based on evidence of data to shape our response and for you know in in architecture design it, you know these these become important but now we're facing life life threatening consequences first of all i don't think that anything is ever going to be undisputed right there's always going to be someone to dispute like we we don't even have full agreement on the earth is round right now um so i think that's maybe too high a bar the second thing is um and this doesn't work for everyone sadly but you use your gut check does it sound like that's right in your experience that doesn't mean it is or or isn't it means that's the first sort of level of uh, inquiry that you need to take. Does this sound right? And then, you know, you could use a critical thinking um, strategy, which is take the opposite. Take the opposite. Is that true? Does that sound more right in your experience? So we can all sort of be more critical about the things that we encounter, the, the decisions we need to make. The, the biggest, I think, uh, strategy you're, you're asking about here is about data. I have no problem with evidence-based or data-based design any more than I have with evidence-based science. The issue there, the challenge is what data, what constitutes data? Who gets to say what is and isn't data, what data is being looked at, right? There's, there's no such thing as objectivity. Even what you leave out is a political decision, is a subjective decision. So, you know, the problem with evidence-based, you know, proponents is that they only accept certain kinds of evidence, certain kinds of data, right? And anything that doesn't fit that just gets ignored. That's been the history of business and economics, basically. You know, neoclassical economics is all about 
ignore the stuff that's hard to understand about the market and narrow in only on the stuff that's easy to do with simple math, right? And then the math gets more complex, but it is hardly representative of human behavior in markets. So the first thing to recognize is whose data, where's it coming from, how valid it is, and what's the data? Right. And, and the problem is most people, we have, a, we have a cultural shift in this country towards quantitative data and, and, and exclusively quantitative data. Qualitative data is data too, and many times it's more important. And the two together are really powerful, but in industry after industry, sector after sector, quali the qualitative has been driven out of understanding research and decision-making. And, and so this quant only focus is really dangerous here. We know that it's really dangerous because here lives are on the line, but even where lines, lives aren't on the line, you know, that sort of math uh, exclusiveness has ruined sports, it's ruined food, it's ruining physics, it's ruining business and marketing. Like it ruins everything it touches because it reduces everything down to only numbers and only numbers that come from one particular place. And right. that's a recipe for danger and disaster. Well, you know, I think Nate Silver's 538 approach, if anything, was revolutionary because he, he just said, it's not up to me to choose the data source. I'm just going to pool all the data sources right. and average them. And, you know, obviously as a designer, I, I have some questions well, about that. <laughs> well, but, but, but look what happened in, in the election in 2016, right? 96 or 98% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to win, right? And, and he pulled, he used the right statistical methods, right? Like it was absolutely sound work and yet it didn't happen. And it's really interesting to analyze what, what did work out of that. And, and really what happened is they were polling and, and most of these polls are, who would you choose to vote for? Great. And they nailed it. Yeah, 90 some odd percent of people would vote for Hillary Clinton instead of um, uh, Donald Trump. Um, and that never changed. It wasn't that the data was wrong. It wasn't that uh, they somehow missed something in the data, but that's the answer to only one of the important questions. The other question is, how likely is it that you will get off your butt on the couch and go vote on that day? And in fact, even more interesting, how likely, how much more likely or less likely are you liable to vote knowing that 98% of people want, you know, polled want Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, right? Because that actually reduced the numbers of people who actually went to go vote because they figured they didn't have to. Someone else is going to vote for me. It's a landslide anyway. I'll continue watching, you know, Housewives of the whatever. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about quantifiable and qual qualitative data, so many companies are using these seductive dashboards focused on the quantifiable data. And these dashboards are beautifully designed, so engaging, and information is simplified. Um, and so people are making decisions just based on this quantifiable information. But this is not how we used to make decisions. And of course, this type of data can be useful, but it doesn't automatically mean we are making better decisions. Yeah. Well, so to your point, uh, uh, Eve, about corporate dashboards, you're absolutely right. In the 70s, 
when you know MBAs suddenly were flooding uh, out of universities with these brand new degrees and and going into quote unquote businesses and going into leadership roles of businesses. You know, prior to this, companies like General Motors and Ford and God knows U.S. Steel, the way that you they you know, that people would advance into leadership is that there was a leadership training program, and you wouldn't spend a week in a, in a factory and then a week in accounting or a month in you know procurement and a month in HR. You learned the business, and that's that was a prerequisite for becoming a leader in an organization. Post you know MBA flooding the the, the market, now we have people coming right out of school with this magical degree called an MBA, and they go right into leadership experience, uh, positions with no experience in the business, with only very generalized knowledge about accounting and HR and now IT, et cetera. And that was the, we, we, the term at the time that was coined was the bean counters. It was all about counting numbers and strategies to deal with the numbers. And so you got slash and burn budgets and selling off profitable uh, divisions, and we saw what it what it did to American industry in the 70s. It destroyed whole companies because it got rid of the qualitative. Relationships were no longer important. Design wasn't important anymore because that was this sort of feel-good, emotional thing. It turns out, if you look at any company that ever goes public or ever gets acquired, it turns out that the, the great majority of value that gets transferred, in other words, the amount of money that gets paid extra is all based on the qualitative value, not the quantitative value. I'll give you a quick um, example. Instagram, when Instagram is purchased by Facebook, it sold for $1.1 billion. And at the time, it just seemed absurd. I think it was about 13 or 15 people at that point. They, hadn't, they were not profitable, you know, da, 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 da. If you looked at the books the day before the sale, the books, the accounting system, the way that we track value, because it's only value that matters in business, the book said it was an $86 million company. The day after the sale, no, it's a $1.1 billion company. So where'd the extra billion something come from? That wasn't the financial value and it didn't represent the functional value. It represented a billion dollars off the books of emotional identity and meaningful value, right? Yes, and during this era of automation and AI and all this quantitative data used inside businesses, I find it fascinating that on the individual level, there has been a lot of discussion about qualitative information and people's soft skills. Yeah, the, the most complex stakeholder or element within any, any of these ecosystems are people. People are weird. People are on, you know, like they're diverse. They don't have the same motivations. They don't act the same way. They're really hard to measure, which is why economics basically just wrote them off with statements like people are rational actors. My response to that is name one, show me one rational actor, certainly in the reduced definition of how economics, you know, defines rationality, right? So at the core of how we make decisions as a, as a organization or as a society are absolute myths that don't hold through. So it's, it's sort of amazing, you know, COVID-19 notwithstanding, it's sort of amazing that we've been able to be so successful for the last 50 years, having our fundamental tools 
and principles about how, how to run organizations be so faulty at the core. But it's not, it's not surprising to me that finally those, those situations are collapsing. Is that why you started the design MBA thing at CCA? Was your decision to start that, was it because of the Apples, Teslas, VWs of the world showing that design matters in business? Or was it the opposite, that the old bean counter approach that you just talked about was ultimately a failure, that it kind of played itself out? Which, which was the one that kind of drove you to think this needs to be done? Well, it's funny. So when we started the design MBA at CCA, um, we chose that name very uh, deliberately because CCA is an art and design school, right? No one, no one quote unquote, is going to come to it for a business program. So we knew that design was a really important hook. Um, but many people misunderstood because of that title that it was some sort of like, oh, business school for designers, how, how cute and quaint. Um, from the beginning, we defined it as this is the business program for the 21st century. This isn't just for designers. This is how we reinvent business programs. So that we were very much reacting against the, you know, quote unquote, rational neoclassical economics, quantitative world being so singularly focused and quite frankly, unsustainable. I came out of the, out of Presidio, which was the first um, accredited degree in sustainable business. Um, so that's the reasoning why we created it. But what you mentioned about the sort of Apple in particular, but at that time, P&G and Nike and a bunch of other companies that were being not just recognized, but rewarded for making design and using it, making it so important and using it so strategically, that was the context that essentially allowed us to get established and then thrive. And I owe a, a tremendous debt to the apples of the world, you know, the companies who use design strategically in a really smart way that don't discount the importance of the qualitative in their quest to manage a professional organization. We owe them a debt that the DMBA could exist because we could point to those companies and say, see, there's, there's something to this. When we bring this back to patients and treatment, yeah. Yeah. every popular science magazine of the 1950s and 60s showing the hotel room of the future was essentially touchscreen panels displaying data. And then we seem to have missed that because now the current trend in, in treatment rooms for patient design is... I want it to look like a spa. Every room has to be a spa. You have to hide. All the med gases have to be hidden. All the call buttons have to be hidden. Everything's hidden. That's what the current treatment rooms are like. And it's, it's maddening to me because it seems like the data could affect patient recovery. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it really depends on, I, I think this is sort of uh, where, where you need to have options. So for some patients, maybe they just need, in order to heal, they need to be less left alone. They need to not be constantly reminded by, about their illness. I, I've seen enough friends and family members in ICUs and hospital rooms where they're cold, they're not comfortable, that damn thing is beeping constantly, they can't get a, a good night's sleep, which is, sleep is really important to our bodies fixing themselves. So I think there's something to that. But if the reason why the data is missing is because we don't want to scare people or we don't think that people can handle the data, then those are the wrong, you know, the, the wrong decisions. If you go the other way and look at how 
medical bays are portrayed in science fiction, and I did a whole book on science fiction interfaces, that's just chart junk anyway, right? Like nobody's, not even the doctors need to know, uh, you know, most of the stuff that gets displayed in that 1950s-esque stuff. And so maybe there's something in the middle, like, um, you know, in the, the original Star Trek med bay, where there's a display behind the patient with all just the vitals, not, not too much data, not too much overkill. Um, you know, maybe there's some happy medium, but uh, I think it also really depends on how serious someone's condition is and whether they're being, you know, saved in, in, in real time, like the machines are saving their life and keeping them living versus they're convalescing. It's funny how all three of us started our careers in architecture. Nathan, you started in architecture in school and then left architecture. I graduated from Tulane and worked some years at Gensler um, before my long stint as a serial entrepreneur at tech startups. And Eric is still an architect and a great one at that. (laughs) Um, And he's a lifer. I want to give a big shout out to architecture school, which has its pluses and minuses and some schools and whatever. Like there's politics there too, right? But there is something to an architecture degree that is transformative to a way of thinking and, and, and quite frankly, orienting yourself to the world. And you can find it in many design programs. So architecture and design are sort of synonymous, except that architecture and things like um, uh, industrial design and even interaction design have to, to succeed and thrive with a larger number of competing constraints than usually graphic design, for instance, has to deal with or some other forms of design. Um, I remember in the mid 90s when we were in Multimedia Gulch, um, not only were we trying to design screens and design services, but we had to invent the tools and then go invent the, the, the machines that we were gonna run on simultaneously. Whereas, you know, many, aside from some exceptions like Issei Miyake and fashion, you know, most designers aren't having to reinvent the tools and reinvent the, the means of publishing their work while they're you know, dealing with the content of the work as well. So there's something about having to deal with so many competing constraints that, that architecture definitely has to engage in many forms of design do that transforms your thinking. And we need more of this. And to me, it comes down to two things, being able to think critically and being able to think creatively. Those are the skills for the 21st century. And we're 20 years in, it's a little late for us to be, you know, coming to that conclusion. And coincidentally, as we're on the dawn of machine automation, um, uh, you know, essentially destroying jobs left and right, those are the skills that computers and machines are worst at, creative and critical thinking. So we should be transforming education all around, you know, those plus about three other C's, communication, collaboration. We could throw three S's in there, systems thinking, sustainability, and strategy, right? Like those are the basis of what education should be. And I don't think most educational institutions have have, uh, pivoted yet. Everyone, not everyone's ever gonna be good at or, or excel at those things that sort of juggling conceptually and creatively, but everyone needs to be exposed to it because that is the essence of how we're gonna design our way out of this per- particular crisis, but design our way out of all the rest of the crises, right? Climate change and uh, extractive economies and you know the list is 
pretty long of things that need to be redesigned still. Um, the other nice thing about design and architecture is there's no assumption that there's only one answer or that there's one right answer. There are lots of answers and none of them may be the right answer. And that that's okay, you can still move forward, but there isn't, you know, except maybe some specific architects, there isn't this absolutism about um, the solution or the design response. Well, so, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't want, I don't want to give the impression that architecture is the most incredible, you know, blameless um, industry out there, but the skills that you learn in, in architecture school and many design schools are amazingly transformative and transferable. And, and I meet people throughout my entire life. I've met people who are not doing architecture, who have been amazing thinkers and doers and builders and designers, but had an architecture education. There are no jobs to do what architects have essentially been trained to do, which is big, you know, multifaceted solutions. I, I do want to <laughs> uh, say one other thing. I am not a practicing architect. I've never been a practicing architect, but I did once get a cease and desist letter from the AIA for practicing information architecture. And I have that one in my files and I will never get rid of that letter. I was... Wow, Nathan, what a story. Never heard that one before. One of the best skills I learned in architecture school was the combination of creative but practical problem solving. How every situation, every design problem has many different solutions. Um, we all three remember the use of yellow trace paper and how that becomes a stack of ideas, many different design options. This teaches someone that there is no one absolute answer and learning to feel comfortable in the gray, the unknown. And this is the type of thinking and process and solutions we really need to employ right now for the COVID-19 crisis. That's exactly right. And I think that that lack of ability of dealing with ambiguity is what's wrong with a lot of uh, decision-making within government, within uh, organizations, within society, um, because there are people who literally can't deal with ambiguity. It, it, it destabilizes their worldview. It destabilizes them emotionally. And that's one thing you usually get in architecture school. Um, you know, the first time you go through your first real ravaging crit or critique, you know, that's the beginning of your, you know, career in dealing with ambiguity. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of these lessons that I don't think that many people get in their careers. Um, and you can see it in, in how they make decisions, et cetera. If we're, we're gonna talk about care by design, then we have to understand what design brings to the table. And it's this ability to deal in ambigu ambiguous times, it's ability to, to be both creative and critical and find a way through the mess because it's often a really messy uh, process. And in fact, most designers, when they start a project, the first thing they feel is, oh my God, what if I don't do, like, what if I can't find a, a good solution here? Or what if nothing comes of this, you know, and, and you confront that and push through it. And then of course you find something really interesting. And that is if you, you know, in the, in the world of generative communications, which comes out of neuro-linguistic programming, where ideas and words are carefully defined so that they can be distinguished and understood, um, care is action, care is what you do. 
care isn't what you wish. And often in my workshops, I'll, I'll ask everyone to raise their hands and say, who cares about the homeless situation? Who cares about animals? Um, or who cares about whatever? And you know, who's not gonna raise their hand at something like that, in, especially in a public situation? And then you say, okay, well, keep your hand up only if you donated money to a homeless uh, NGO or you, you know, you did something for a homeless person to help them get out of homelessness and everyone has to shrink their, their hand down, except for maybe one or two people. And that's the issue right there. We say we care about things, but unless we take action, we're not doing anything about them. How could we say we care, right? And we have, in our society at least, and I'm speaking for the US, there's no acceptable say, way, way to say, that's important, I recognize, I wish that was a better situation, but I don't care about it, not enough to do something. Because we can't all care about everything anyway, we don't have the resources or the time, we can care about a few things, but there's no acceptable way to say, I care about these things and I can't care about those things. And so nothing gets done or very little gets done. But we, we think by wishing and, and empathizing with the situation that that's somehow helping. Sort of like, well, I tweet about it all the time on Twitter, so I'm engaged. But that's, you know, as we know, that's not the case. So I think we need to really think about what it means to care and what it means to design. And then we'll get somewhere. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us today. It was really great to have you. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Care by Design with Eric Corey Freed and me, Eve Blossom, as your hosts. We look forward to our next interview this upcoming Tuesday. Visit us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Care by Design Pod. And there you can see additional show notes of each of our podcast interviews and additional posts on new podcast interviews. So tune in this Tuesday for our next Care by Design podcast. Hear us then.